Well, speaking of the Bible, as we continue our journey uh, through 1 Corinthians, we're in 1 Corinthians 10. So I'd encourage you to take your Bible or iPhone or Android or whatever you use to read. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'll be reading from the ESV. And uh, we're going to read from 10.1 to 11.1. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his Holy Spirit to guide us in the reading and preaching of his word. Please join me as we pray. God, we thank you so much that you inspired Paul to write this powerful letter of instruction, correction, and encouragement. And God, I pray that as you read these words, you might encourage us in our faith. We might see more clearly how we can faithfully follow you and bring all glory and honor to you. Oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning with verse 1. Listen to God's word. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters of some, as some of them were, as it is written, that people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. That's why you read Numbers 25. I wasn't just trying to pick on uh, Emily. That's that text there. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not the participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not the participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifice participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provide, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean for your conscience, but for his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with the thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? 
So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or the Greeks or the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Here ends the reading of God's word. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to look again at uh, verses 6 through 11 there. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Talking about the Israelites in the wilderness. Do not be idolaters of some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. You know, one of my favorite quotes uh, from uh, uh, Warren Buffett, who was a multi-billionaire, is it's good to learn from your mistakes. It's even better to learn from other people's mistakes, right? It's good to learn from your mistakes, even better to learn from other people's mistakes. That's what Paul is trying to do here. He's trying to help the Corinthians, who are mostly Greek, to learn from the mistakes of the Israelites. Don't do what they did. Don't make these same mistakes regarding idolatry. Reminds me when I was a kid growing up in Midland, Texas. I went to this little Episcopal school called Trinity School. It's very similar to St. Andrew's here, and uh, we had small classes. We actually had a Latin teacher who's from England. He used to teach at this uh, boys' boarding school in England. He's a very strict disciplinarian, and I learned that my first day in his class. One of my buddies was shooting a rubber brand across the room to hit a friend of mine, and uh, Mr. Gurr saw this, and he pounded his desk, looked at uh, my friend in the face, and said, go to the principal's office right now. And I knew right then, do not shoot rubber bands in Mr. Gurr's class. I'm learning from my other person's mistake, right? It's, it's good to learn from your mistakes. It's even better to learn from someone else's mistakes, right? So learn from other people's mistakes. Paul is trying to help the church in Corinth as they wrestle with this question. If you've been with us the last several weeks, you know that in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul starts to address a question that was asked of him. Is it okay to eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols? And of course, uh, the Corinthians, the strong, mature Christians know that these idols, and they had many uh, temples in Corinth, it's a major metropolitan city, that a temple to Apollos and a temple to the goddess Aphrodite, that these gods and goddesses of the Greek mythology are empty, they're not true gods, and so the idols are empty. And so the meat that's been sacrificed to these idols is probably harmless, and it's probably okay to eat, and everybody likes meat, right? So they're like, hey, it's probably okay to eat the meat. But Paul tells them in 1 Corinthians 8 that if you're eating meat sacrificed to idols— particularly in the temple, and it looks like you're participating in idol worship, that could actually cause your, your weaker brother or your newer Christian to stumble in their faith. Because if they see you doing something that's associated with idol worship, they may think, oh my goodness, is it okay to worship idols in this newfound faith of Christ? And of course we know we're not supposed to commit idolatry. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 continues to point out, like a, a trained athlete, you know, he's been training and focusing his life, giving up things, giving up some of his own freedoms, so that he might reach everyone with the gospel of Christ. He's chosen not to eat meat, as he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 13. He's chosen not to take a wife, because he can see how without a wife, he's able to travel around the Mediterranean and preach the gospel and plant churches without the responsibility uh, of having a wife and family. He's chosen not to do that. That's his choice. And he's chosen not to take a salary, because he doesn't want anyone to think that he's preaching for a financial benefit. 
And he says, I do all this so that I might reach as many. I've become like the Jews to reach the Jews. I've become like the Greeks to reach the Greeks. I do everything to help reach others with the good news of Jesus. And then as a final summary, he's trying to help them see that while idolatry, eating this meat that's been sacrificed to idol, may seem harmless, it can actually harm your soul. Look at what happened to the Israelites. Look again at verse 7. <laughs> Excuse me. Do not be idolat- idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's a direct quote from Exodus chapter 32. If you go to Exodus uh, 32, you'll see the story of how while Moses is on the top of Mount Sinai uh, getting the Ten Commandments, the people of Israel become anxious. And they're like, where's Moses? What's happened? And so they come to Aaron, uh, you know, the priest, and they say, look, uh, here's some gold. Make us an idol that we might worship it. And so he takes the gold, which ironically God had given them that gold. If you read the story of Exodus, you'll see that God moves in the hearts of the Egyptians to give gold to the Israelites as they flee the country. It's like, here, take this gold. Get out of here. We don't want any more plagues to hit our country. And so they leave with gold that God gave to them from the Egyptians. And they take that gold that God gave to them and they make a golden calf. They begin to worship it. And this makes God so angry. Why would they so quickly forget God? After all, if you read the story, and, and Paul points out here in the text, you know, they've been eating the, the manna from heaven, the bread from heaven, right? They had every day, they had enough food to eat because God provided manna for them in the wilderness. They were able to drink water in the wilderness from a rock because God provided that water for them to drink. They were able to walk through the Red Sea on dry ground because God provided uh, provision and, and divided the Red Sea so they might walk through dry ground and, and, and escape Pharaoh's army. And yet so quickly... They're turned to idolatry. And not just idolatry, but sexual immorality, which leads to idolatry, as we saw in that Numbers 25 text that uh, Emily read uh, so wonderfully a moment ago. Because what happens is the people of Israel begin to connect with these Moabite women, and the Moabite women have, well, they've got these, these false gods, Baal of Peor, who's a fertility god. And so as they start to commit sexual immorality, then they begin to, to begin to worship the idols of, of, of the, the Moabites, specifically Baal of Peor, and so their heart is turned from God. He's like, don't do what the Israelites did. Learn from their mistakes. Why would the Israelites so quickly turn to sexual immorality and idolatry, even though God was providing for them each and every day? Why can we so quickly turn to sexual immorality and idolatry, even though God provides for us each and every day? Now, I know that we can think about, well, idols. I don't, you know, I'm not offering idols to Apollos or to Aphrodite. However, uh, this book we've been reading on Wednesday night, it's called Counterfeit Gods by Timothy Keller. Uh, The subtitle is The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power, and the Only Hope that Matters. And he points out that, you know, in this introduction of his book, he writes this, we think that idols are bad things, but that's almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. What is an idol? It's anything more important to you than God. Whenever we pursue anything more than God, we've made it an idol. For instance, money is a a neutral thing, and yet we can make it an idol if we pursue money more than God. Romance and, and marriage is a blessing, but we can make an idol of romance if we pursue it more than God. Even success, success is a good thing, but we can make it an idol if we make it an ultimate thing and we pursue it more than God. 
we just went over the chapter on success, the idol, the idol of success, and we talked about, you know, how many, how many marriages have been torn apart as, as a husband and wife sacrifice their marriage in order to achieve occupational success. How many children barely know their father because their father is always pursuing occupational success? Or how many children don't even really know how to worship God because on a Sunday morning, they're seeking athletic success rather than worshiping Almighty God? Reminds me years ago, um, you know, my wife is from San Antonio, and so we, we go to San Antonio a couple of times a year, and one of the favorite things we like to do is we like to worship at First Press San Antonio, because I don't have to preach, I can just sit, it's kind of nice. And, uh, and, and that's the church that Sarah grew up in, it's the church I went to when I was in college, so we know a lot of people, and we love going there. And, and one year, though, we decided we were going to go to early service, because it's a nine-hour drive, at least when my family does it. It's a nine-hour drive from San Antonio to Amarillo, because we've got all these stops along the way. And so we're like, hey, let's go to early service, and then we'll, we'll cut out get out of the building by 9.30. So we did. Went to 8.30, cut out at 9.30, about 9.35 or so. We're in our car driving down I-10, and I looked at my clock, and on my clock in the dashboard, it was 10 a.m., and as I looked to the right, there's this huge baseball complex packed with people. 10 a.m. on a Sunday morning. It was more important to seek athletic success rather than to worship the one true God. In his chapter on success, he actually makes reference to, I believe, the greatest movie ever made, Chariots of Fire. I know this is my own personal opinion. If you haven't seen this movie, though, you need to watch it. It won Best Picture, right? So at least in 1981, it was the Best Picture. But it's a really good movie. It tells the true story of the 1924 Olympics held in Paris, France. By the way, 2024, where are the Olympics going to be held? Paris, France, right? 100 years later. And it's a true story of Eric Little and Harold Abrahams, who both ran for England. And Harold Abrahams was a Jewish runner, and it talks about what motivated Harold Abrahams to be such a, 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 a good runner. And, and he shares that as a Jewish man living in an English country, he wants to prove through his running that he's as good, if not better, than anyone else. And uh, what's interesting is Eric Little, on the other hand, who's Scottish, the son of Scottish missionaries to China, he runs because God made me fast. I want to run. I feel his pleasure. That's what he said. That's probably that's my Scottish accent. Anyway, best chance I got there. I, I am Scotch-Irish, by the way. I don't know. But anyway, my got a West Texas accent. But anyway, yeah, really cool to see this man who lives and trains for God and God's glory. In fact, it reminds me of 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 25 that we read last week. It says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Eric Little is running for that imperishable prize, not the perishable short-term gold medal prize. He's running for the imperishable. And this becomes most evident as he's crossing the English Channel. He learns that the heat in both Harold Abrahams and Eric Little run the 100 meters. It's the race for the fastest, right? It's the sprinter's race. They both run that, the 100 meters. And he learns while he's crossing the English Channel that one of the heats is on a Sunday. He's like, I can't run on Sunday because I run for the Lord, and that's the Lord's Day. And the Lord's Day is not a day for running. And so he refuses, even though he's qualified for the Olympics, even though he beat Harold Abrahams in an early race, even though he's picked in many ways to win the 100 meters, to win a gold medal, right, to be immortalized as a gold medal winner, he refuses to run on Sunday. Well, this upsets uh, the English leaders of the Olympic team. It gets the news. Everyone pays attention to this man named Eric Little who runs for God and refuses to run on Sunday. I won't tell you what happened. You've got to watch the movie to see what happened on the rest of that. But there is a poignant scene where Harold Abrahams, who's Jewish, is going to run on that Sunday because well, his Sabbath's on Saturday anyway. He doesn't care. He's going to run. And what does he run for? He runs for a prize, a temple prize. 
And as he's getting ready to run this final race for the gold medal, he's with his friend Monty, and he says to Monty, you know, I've known the fear of losing, but I've never known the fear of winning. I'm almost too frightened to win. Because if I win, then what will I live for? He's come to the realization that if he's lived his life for this gold medal, if he actually obtains it, then what? He loses his sense of purpose, his sense of drive. My friend, success is always a moving target. And if you achieve success, what happens to that trophy? What happens to that medal? It collects dust in your, in your parents' basement, right? I mean, it doesn't last. It's temporal. It, it doesn't really feel good for that long. It was interesting, in 2002, Rick Warren, great Baptist uh, pastor, wrote a wonderful best-selling book, The Purpose Driven Life. It sold over 50 million copies. Let that settle in. 50 million copies. Translated in 85 different languages. This book touched a lot of hearts and a lot of minds. And he begins the book by saying this, when it comes to the purpose of your life, it's not about you. The purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment, your peace of mind, or even your happiness. It's not about you. And then in chapter 8, he explains what is the purpose of life. He says this, bringing enjoyment to God, living for his pleasure is the first purpose of your life. Bringing pleasure to God is called worship. The Bible says the Lord is pleased only with those who worship him and trust his love. Anything you do that brings pleasure to God is an act of worship. The purpose of life is to bring glory and honor to God. As Presbyterians, doesn't that sound familiar? I think I've heard that before. We've been saying that since the 1600s uh, when we wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Protestant Reformers, and trying to help teach what the Bible teaches, which the Bible, again, 66 books, kind of long. Like, hey, let's, let's summarize some basic teachings to help teach the faith, to help pass on the faith, to help understand how to interpret the Bible. They wrote the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And the opening question it comes from 1 Corinthians 10, 31 that I just read. The idea is, what's the purpose of life? Or, or what's the chief end of man? In fact, we're going to show it up here. Let, read it with me. What's the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's what life's all about. That's why I think Chariots of Fire is the greatest movie ever made. Because when I watched that movie at the age of 20, I was like, oh, life's about bringing glory and honor to God. Just like Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Just like Rick Warren said in his book, The Purpose Driven Life. Now, I wish he'd given some of, us, some of us the proceeds from some of this book since we gave him the idea. But anyway, he didn't do that. He gave, book, he gave money to a lot of other things. He went to Fuller Seminary, which is a Presbyterian seminary where I went as well, uh, or has a lot of Presbyterians in it. Certainly exposed to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. But the point of life is, is to bring glory and honor to God. And, and I know if you didn't grow up Presbyterian, you might think, well, what's the purpose of these confessions and creeds and all this stuff? It helps teach what the Bible teaches. Because sometimes when you read you know, the Bible, and you read about 1 Corinthians 10, and you read about this question about, you know, is it okay to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols? You go, well, that's kind of pointless. No one's doing that today. How is that pertinent to my life today? 1 Corinthians 10 is very pertinent to our lives today because the bigger issue is idolatry. And we're all susceptible to make idols of temporal things. So how are we to resist idolatry? Paul tells us very clearly in verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. The first step is we got to flee, we got to pray, and then we got to praise. Flee, pray, and praise. Therefore, flee, my beloved, from idolatry. This is the same thing he said in 1 Corinthians 6 when he said, flee from sexual immorality. 
Paul is telling them that if you think hanging out in the temple and eating the meat that's been sacrificed to idols is good for your soul, you're completely wrong. It's not good for your soul. It wasn't good for the Israelites to do this kind of thing. Neither will it be good for you. Don't be in places where you'll be tempted to chase after the idols of this world. How do we apply that to our lives today? Well, as Keller points out, one of the big idols of our world is, is you know, stuff, right? Materialism, consumer culture that we live in. And I don't know about you, but I have found that if I don't go into a store, I buy less things. It's been really interesting. Uh, my, I don't try to shop maybe once or twice a year. And, and, and every year we go to San, San Antonio and often we'll make a trip to San Marcos. And I tell you, man, I'm trying to battle this. But I, in my mind, I'll be like, okay, all I need is like another dress shirt and a tie perhaps. You know, but I don't really need any more stuff than that. Just two, two things, two items. I end up walking with like five bags of stuff. I was like, how did this happen? Because they're great at advertising. They're like, oh, come, consume, 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 right? Don't put ourselves in a situation where we might be tempted. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee from idolatry. Flee from pornos is the Greek word for sexual morality. Don't put yourself in a place where you might be tempted. But what's also important is to pray. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians that we should be in constant prayer and petition. We should have a running conversation as we talk to God about what he would have us do. And as we pray in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We don't even want to be drawn close to temptation. So God, lead me away from that. We need to pray that God would lead us away from being tempted. Because notice what Paul says, God will not allow you to be tempted more than you can bear, but he will provide a way out, and that way out is through prayer and fleeing and ultimately praising. God. Now I know in this life, you know, we're all going to face different disappointments where things don't go our way. We're going to experience different moments of grief or pain or suffering. And the temptation is to look to the temporal idols to, to, to ease our pain or to distract us or to help us feel good, right? That, that's the temptation. But the best thing we can do in the midst of, of hard times is to look at what Job did and to praise. Remember the story of Job? It's in the Old Testament. You can check it out if you haven't read. Just read the first few, three chapters. You'll get a sense of the idea of the story and then read the last one. But all that to say, Job had seemingly everything going for him. But then he has a messenger come back and say, oh, someone took all your, your livestock. and they've, Oh, and then all your family's been killed. And, and he loses everything. And he's in total grief. But what does he do? He doesn't curse God. He says, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. When I've been through hard times, i found the best way to help me stay focused on the goodness of God is by praising Him. You see, when we gather in corporate worship like we're doing today, we remember and we remind ourselves of just how good our God is and how much our God loves us. He loves us this much. So much that He would send His one and only Son, that even though we're sinful and even though we don't always do what we, what we should do, and sometimes we do things we, we should not do, God doesn't abandon us in our sin. Even though we're all created in the very image of God and, and we want to reflect that glory of God, sometimes we don't glorify him like we should. But God doesn't abandon us. No, he actually became one of us in his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who loved us with an unconditional, sacrificial love, who lived in perfect obedience to our Heavenly Father. And then he died on a cross as the perfect atoning sacrifice for all of our sins so that we could see that God doesn't just love us this much. He loves us this much. No greater love is it than this than a man who's willing to die for his friends. And of course, the good news is not just that Jesus died, but that he rose again, conquering sin and death on our behalf so that we might know with full assurance that we'll have eternal life in him and we can have a new life in him, that Jesus is who he said he was, the Son of God, the great I am, the Savior of the world. Amen? Amen. And if that's the case, then we want to live our life to bring glory and honor to him, to give thanks to him, even in the hard times. 
Now, y'all know I married a Longhorn, so I've become a Longhorn fan. I grew up a Tech fan, right? It's more fun to be a Longhorn fan, though. I've just noticed that in the last few years. But anyway, I'm a Longhorn fan. And uh, I don't know if you remember Colt McCoy. They were talking about uh, the last time the Longhorns were rated this high was back when Colt McCoy was a quarterback. You may remember he was in the national championship game against Alabama, right? And he gets hit, and he goes out, and he hurts his shoulder, and he's out for the game. Well, what happens? They interview Colt, and it was amazing what Colt McCoy had to say. You know, it would have been easy to complain about the situation, but he doesn't. He says, I, I want to give God glory in good times and bad times. To God be all the glory. My friends, no matter what we do, we want to give glory and honor to God and gratitude for all that he's done for us. Keller ends his book, and I hate to ruin it for everybody who is in the class, but I'm going to go ahead and read 171 for you. It says here, idolatry is not just a failure to obey God. It's a setting of the whole heart on something besides God. This cannot be remedied only by repenting that you have an idol or using willpower to try to live differently, turning from idols. It's not less than two things, but it's also far more. Setting the mind and heart on things above where your life is hid with Christ and God means appreciation, rejoicing, and resting in what Jesus has done for you. It entails joyful worship, a sense of God's reality and prayer. Jesus must become more beautiful to your imagination, more attractive to your heart than your idol. That's what will replace your counterfeit gods. My friends, we've got to take a bad habit like idolatry and replace it with a good habit like worship. By doing all we can to flee from sin, pray daily that God might lead us in his way and weekly worship corporately and individually daily as well, praising God for all he's done for us. Please join me as we pray. Gracious and loving God, I thank you that you're the God who doesn't abandon us in our sin, but you actually became one of us. And Lord, we know that there are different idols, things that try to draw us away from you and seek our attention or seek our passion, Lord, but we want to be focused on you and you alone, bringing all glory and honor to you. So God, I pray that we might learn from the Israelites and their mistakes. We might learn from the Corinthians and their mistakes, that we might focus on bringing all glory and honor to you to do whatever we can to give you all the glory and praise and gratitude for what you have done for us. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son, who is the Christ, and all God's people said, Amen.